about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. Now, this broadcast will be featuring Skip Morris, and he'll be answering your most important questions on salmon flies and golden stones. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Skip a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on our homepage, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show wins. So if you have to leave early, you can return to the website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Skip Morris about salmon flies and golden stones. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market, as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They're best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at their ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. Before we introduce Skip, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, which is at askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Skip's section that says, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We will also be giving away a copy of Skip's book, The Salmon Fly, courtesy of Stackpole Books. Uh, to find out more about Stackpole, go to stackpolebooks.com, and you can see all the great books that they have published over the years. And they're always coming out with new ones. There's some really exciting ones coming out this coming year that uh, I've got a kind of a heads up on already. So uh, look for those new books and uh, check out Salmonfly as well as uh, uh, Skip's other books uh, that he's published. Now here's how you can win his uh, Skip's book. You must be the first person to answer the question or questions. It might be a two-part question that we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something that Skip and I talk about during the show. And you must submit your answer along with your name and your location using the text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your best typing skills, and hopefully you'll win Skip's book, The Salmon Fly. Our guest tonight is Skip Morris. There are a few names in the world of fly fishing so widely known and solidly established as Skip Morris. Skip has published 18 fly fishing books, including the genuine bestseller, currently in its 22nd printing, Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple. He has also authored many other books, including Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple 2, Advanced Techniques, uh, The Art of Tying the Nymph, 
the art of tying the dry fly, the art of tying the bass fly, tying foam flies, concise handbook, fly tying, the custom graphite rod, Morrison Chan on fly fishing, trout lakes, waterproof fly fishing guide, uh, western fly fishing hatches, and Morris on tying flies and trout flies for rivers. So those are just a few. Skip has published and uh, written over 300 articles on fly fishing and fly tying, along with a smaller number on jazz guitar, which have appeared in the following magazines, Fly Rod and Reel, Fly Tire, Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, Warm Water Fly Fishing, Fly Tying, American Angler, Salmon Trout, Steelheader, Western Outdoors, Fly Fisherman, Fly Fusion, Midwest Fly Fishing, um, Hatches, and Just Jazz Guitar. He also contributes to a column for Midcurrent called Ask the Experts. In the fall of 1996, uh, issue of Fly Tying Magazine uh, contained a feature article about Skip titled Skip Morris, the Man in the Painting. Skip's original fly pants are tied and distributed by the Solitude Fly Company of Alhambra, California, and their current catalog contains about 30 of Skip's patterns, many in different sizes. The Fly Shop in California one of the major fly fishing mail order houses carries several of Skip's patterns in its catalog and on its website. He is an instructor on six videos and has worked in radio and television as both a fly fishing host and celebrity guest. Skip, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Hey, glad to be back. Did I really do all that? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens you when you better have. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens when you have two and a half decades of just being in this business. You know, you yeah. better get stuff done, or you're not going to keep your house. We could always check with your wife and see. You know, <laughs> no, no, that's all right. Don't do that. Yeah, no, no, don't go there. Okay. All right. Well, um, we've got lots of questions, and you know, the, the salmon fly and golden stone hatches are always something we think about even if we haven't fished them uh it's kind of that mystery thing and that super exciting experience that we all want to be involved with so let's you know have you educate us tonight on the salmon flying golden stones and hopefully we can go seek them out and be more successful um the next time around sound good yeah let's do that okay all right so let's talk about the salmon fly first i know we're going to kind of mix these up tonight a little bit um, what are let's talk about salmon fly, then we'll talk about the characteristics of the golden stone. But so, what are what are some of the basic characteristics of a salmon fly? When we're holding one of these things in our hand. What are we looking at? <laughs> well, if you're doing that, you got a handful. They are really big. I mean, they're just a crazy big bug, and that's I think that's a lot of why people get so excited about them, and it's the reason that sometimes trout get really excited about them. They can be. Hmm, I don't remember offhand the exact length but I mean they they take up a lot of your finger. I think they'll I think they push if not exceed slightly on occasion. Though I could be wrong about that. I should look in my book. Uh two inches, which you know, and they're and they're plump to start with. So they're just that's the first thing is that they're enormous. They um they also have stout legs and they have antennae and tails. And uh, I guess that basically covers the profile of the bug itself. That's the adult. The the uh, nymph is, of course, just as big as the adult when it's ready to hatch. And it also has stout legs, no wings, of course, and it also has antennae and tails. And they look almost armored, uh, prehistoric in nature, don't they? They do. They really they look mean, but um, <laughs> they really aren't. <laughs> they aren't. Okay. No, no. They're, I think, if I remember correctly, see, that's the problem with writing a book that's packed with information 
in which you know you've used a lot of sources is sometimes I'm not quite too sure of things and I have to look at my own book. I'm, on this book, as with some of my books, I was a reporter as much as a source myself. And, but if I remember correctly, it's the salmon fly that is primarily or entirely a grazer, and it's the golden stone that looks so innocent and fun that's actually the meat eater and the hunter. Oh. Okay. hope I'm not wrong about that. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, yeah, so um, tell me a bit about the coloring of the of the salmon fly, you know, in the different stages. Yeah, well, the, um, the nymph is, um, on the whole, it, it just has this blackish look. It's, it's not quite black, but it sure looks it. And it, uh, it has a, a much lighter underside. Now, the adult is, uh, is pretty dark, but you see a lot of orange in the adult. And the reason it's called the salmon fly I found this interesting when I did my research. It's it's no big secret, but uh, you know, out here in the West, we have salmon everywhere, especially where I live. I mean, they run up a creek that I can walk to from my house. And if you've ever seen salmon flesh when it's raw, it's some of the salmon, not all of them, but I think it's mostly the silvers. Anyway, their flesh is kind of a kind of a pinkish orange, maybe a little dark, and that's very much like the the underbelly, the part that trout see of the adult, the winged adult. When they look up and see a salmon fly, they see that that coloring, and so the salmon fly got its name from salmon flesh. Okay, okay. And what uh, what is its life cycle? Um, is it you know are the the nymphs something we can fish for year round, and and then look forward to the, the adults, or how does that life cycle work? Yeah, the nymphs uh, they have, if I remember correctly, a two to three year life cycle. And I, I actually used uh, an entomologist, um, a guy that probably a lot of your listeners have heard of, Rick Hafley. He's a, he's a fishing buddy of mine and an old friend, but he is a bona fide entomologist, and I used him as a source for this book. And if I remember correctly, uh, based on that's, I have to warn you, I don't have a very good memory. They have a two- to three-year life cycle, and so, yeah, you're going to have some big ones that are still only half-grown in the river at the same time that you have the ones that are ready to hatch. And uh, so the, there's the nymph that grows up in the river, and uh, then it crawls out to hatch. Um, it's, this is nothing like, you know, we talk about caddis hatches, and especially the classic is mayfly hatches, in which most mayflies swim right up to the surface out in the open, and then they peel off their shucks and they fly off. And that's great. I mean, I love mayfly hatches. I fish a lot of them. But the salmon fly is quite different. It crawls out. It does this uh, typically around dusk and into the night, and then it, you know, escapes its shuck during the night. So the time of the actual hatching it's, you, is not a good time to fish for most people, but also it's really not the kind of hatch that the trout just come up and sip away. It's, you know, because instead of swimming up to the surface in the open, they're crawling out of the water and pretty much trying to hide down there among the rocks as they do it. So it's very different from caddis or midge or, uh, you know, a lot of different hatches. Mm -hmm. And then then the insect is hatched, then it finds a partner, and uh, then the partner is ready to have babies, but they're not really babies, they're eggs. And you have mating flights that are part uh, part of them getting together. It's kind of their mixer. And and then uh, and 
that's kind of it. The females fly out and drop their eggs. The female salmon fly flies above the water to drop her eggs, which is quite different from the golden stone. And so that I don't forget when we get the golden stone, the female golden stone typically drops on the water to release her eggs, making her much more available to the trout than the salmon fly female flies over the water and drops them, uh, you know, does an aerial release. Mm-hmm. And then that's basically it. And the eggs are down well, there. And, uh, another, another now, when they uh, mate on the side, um, what happens? So the female, they mate, the female goes out, uh, lays their eggs, like you said, uh, kind of releasing just above the waterline. What happens to the male? Is, does he fly too, or what? does he just crawl around? <laughs> Well, to the best of my knowledge, he flies out with, you know, during the mating flights because those are, I, I think that's where they buddy up. But, in um, the air? Oh, okay. He, well, they, yeah, that's a good question. I think they meet in the air. <laughs> it's a social gathering thing. And okay. I, I've seen some huge mating flights. I mean, oh, Lord. I saw one in Oregon that just, it was like a, a just a wall of dots overhead. I mean, someone would fly into your face and, you know, fly out into your hair and bump into you, but they were mostly just just over your head and just like a just a layer of them. It was crazy. I've kind of seen the same thing with golden stones, but never quite the same as with salmon flies. Okay, okay. Now, um, when that um, kind of looking at two things here, and then we'll get into it more here in a little bit, but. When those uh, they're in the mating flight, this is all happening at dusk or, or later, you said, usually? Yeah, the ones I've run into have been towards evening. And then, I, I understand so, they can start in the afternoon, but I haven't seen that. So when do you fish the hatch, so to speak, uh, as far as anything on the surface? Is that following morning? Are, you, are they still coming out, or are they floating? or what's, uh, When do you fish, fish that uh, you know, when, they, when the adults fall to the fir- surface? Well, that gets interesting. Um, you know, on some rivers, you just, like the lower Deschutes, you just see salmon flies crawling around on everything. And, I mean, some places, they're just all around you all the time once they're really started to, uh, started to hatch. But, uh, again, they don't, you know, they're mostly, the trout get a shot at salmon flies. It's kind of like grasshoppers. Salmon flies just end up on the water. It can be because of the wind. Okay. It can be because they're scurrying around the edge of the stream, which they do on blades of grass and outstretched branches of trees. And so, really, once the adults take over, you know, once the most of the of the nymphs are, or the majority of the nymphs are hatched, and there are lots of adults around, the trout start looking for adults. And the trout start looking along the edges a lot because that's where they fall in, where the adults fall in. But they also look out deeper because you know currents go all. All, every which way, you know. I don't. I don't think you have to always poke your salmon fly right up against the edge or back in a, mm-hmm. you know, under the shade of a tree branch. But those are also good places for sure. Yeah. And so you have the clumsiness of and the activity of the insects. You know, they're really scurrying around and they're not the greatest flyers. So they're falling in the water, and then of course when they when they're on that mating flight, they end up in the water. Some of them, they bump into each other or they just make a miscalculation or something. And okay. those are really the times. But you're not okay. really fishing the hatch. That's the funny thing. You're not fishing the actual hatching insects. You're, you're fishing the insects yeah. that have previously hatched. Right, right. And or the, in the nymph stage uh, prior to the hatch. That right. Be, I guess at any time, right? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, we'll get into that more here in a few minutes. Let's talk about the golden stone now. And, um, you know, the differences between the salmon fly and the golden stone in size and color and, and activity. Why don't you fill us in on that? Sure. The golden stone, this is the funny thing, is the salmon fly is really the star. And when people talk about the big stones, they almost always talk about the salmon fly. But the... Uh, the golden stone is actually the more important of the two on the whole because it's more common, uh, considerably more common. And it also, um, there are actually two other factors. One is kind of funny, but one is that the female, as I mentioned, unlike the salmon fly female, the golden stone female plops down in the water to release her eggs. So she, she really exposes herself to, to the trout. And then the other thing is, and... Uh, Rick Hayfley told me this, the entomologist friend I mentioned, and a, a guy who owns a fly shop on the Deschutes River, John Smoralio, another old friend, he confirmed it, or I should say that Rick said he would confirm it. It's more accurate, <laughs> but I, I, I seem to recall that John did confirm it. But in any case, they both felt that trout actually prefer the taste of the golden stone over the taste of the salmon fly. So if they're given a choice, they lean towards eating the golden stone. And that's not well, to Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, we might have some uh, additional confirmation here on that. Um, Scott Nelson in Portland, Oregon wrote in, and he says, Hi, Skip. When there is a simultaneous or overlapping emergency of nymphs from both the golden stones and the larger salmon flies, the trout on the lower Deschutes key more towards the golden stone nymphs. Uh, what characteristics or behavior do the golden stone nymphs have that would prompt this conditioning? So, yeah, I mean, nobody really knows, I think. Or maybe somebody knows and I don't, but uh, I think, now I, I know this is true, or I shouldn't say I know. I've been told by, by these two guys that in the case of the adults, it's the taste. And I have a feeling that with the, I haven't noticed that with the nymphs, but if it's true, it's probably the same reason. Well, did you verify that through, you know, I mean, I would assume you've tasted both. I have not. I, uh, <laughs> well, there are two reasons I have not. I mean, not. that's the test. <laughs> well, I know. I know. There are two reasons I haven't. One is I don't particularly uh, relish eating raw bugs, surprisingly. <laughs> and the other is I don't like Jardia. And, of course, you know, oh. they live in the river, and the river can carry that stuff. Any water can okay. carry it. Okay. All right. We'll, have, so, we'll let but, you off the hook now. Well, but Rick Hayfley has tasted them. He yeah, has actually no. tasted them. And I'm trying to remember what he said. I remember that he said that the golden stone tasted kind of like like fresh, I said like sweet grass, you know, like mm. like young grass that would be growing along the river. And he, I can't remember what he said about the salmon fly, but he said it definitely didn't taste as sweet or as good. Huh. He, so he's a very interesting guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've had Rick on a show uh, here. Oh, have you? Okay. You yeah, know. Very, very knowledgeable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so it's a, it's a little bit smaller, right, than the, um, the, the salmon fly, the golden fly. It's a shade smaller, yeah. It's not yeah. a lot smaller. And, of course, the coloring is very different because it's, uh, you know, it's, it really is gold. The hatched adults are fairly pale as opposed to the dark salmon fly adults. Um, they are literally an, an antique gold, I would call it, all over. They're beautiful. I mean, they're both beautiful, honestly, but um, the sound flies and the golden stones are both gorgeous, I think. But 
The uh, nymph of the golden stone, the more common one, is kind of darkish, but not as dark as a salmon fly. But then there's a less common one that still is common. And it is actually pretty pale overall. Okay. So you should be able to differentiate those on the river pretty readily, it sounds like. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the if you find an, a big, huge nymph that's either fairly pale or with some markings or is kind of brownish overall with some markings and it's not black looking, this is, odds are it's the golden stone. Okay, okay. Because there are some other and, big stones. Okay. And what uh, you said, the, the main difference between its life cycle and the salmon fly's life cycle is depositing the eggs? Is that the main difference? Yeah, that seems to be the main difference. I mean, they, they both do so many things much the same. Uh, you know, they, they both go on the mating flights. I've, I've experienced both, and, you know, they both hatch the same way and all that. They're, they're pretty close cousins. Okay, okay. And um, all right, so what? any other major differences between the, the two insects? I think that's probably it. I mean, I think, again, the most important ones are that the golden stone hatch is, is much more common than the salmon fly hatch. In fact, they both, okay. if, where, where salmon flies hatch, often goldens hatch as well. But goldens hatch in a lot of rivers, creeks, and streams that don't have salmon flies. And, uh, and then there's that, the way they oviposit and the taste. The taste, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah, I wonder. Weird, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I wonder if, too, that just because they're, the golden stones are more readily available in the surface if that keys them in on them, you know, more readily, too. I don't know. Uh, well, at that stage of the hatch when they've mated and the female's ready to lay her eggs, uh, sure, absolutely. Before that, um, you know, they should be falling in the stream about in equal numbers. Yeah, okay, okay. Okay, we'll get into um, more about the hatches and so forth here in just a minute. Uh, but let's take a quick break right now, and we'll come back and uh, talk with Skip Morris more about salmon flies and golden stones. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams, and just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience in coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pangas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, Jack Creval, Yellowfin, Skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Skip Morris about salmon flies and golden stones. If you'd like to ask Skip a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Skip, I always ask my guests uh, at this point in the show, you know, what, what's going on in your fly fishing world? So with all your writing and so forth, you, you're probably a very busy man. So fill us in on what's going on. Uh, yeah, I'm, 
I've, I've kind of got self-employed syndrome, so I tend to work all the time. But, you know, I love my work, so I don't consider any, that a problem at all. Um, currently, I'm working on a book that I'm not allowed to say too much about, but I can say that it'll be a big book for Stackpole. And, uh, oh. and I've got a fly that I'm jazzed about that's finally going to come out with Solitude Fly Company called The Predator that's been a that fly snuck up on me. It, it became a big hit with bluegill fishermen and even largemouth bass fishermen uh, without my really knowing it. And then I started seeing it everywhere, and people were opening boxes full of it. So anyway, that's going to come out in 219. And uh, what else is going on? Uh, I've been writing eh, now and then. Uh, well, actually fairly steadily, but not – I don't know what I'm trying to say. But anyway, I'm, <laughs> I'll just abandon that. Um, pretend I didn't say anything, okay? Let's start over. Okay. Yeah, I'm. Uh, this is being recorded, Skip. So. I know, I know, and it's live too. We can edit that out. So. <laughs> yeah, live you can do that. Um, oh. Yeah, I'm. I'm writing for a column uh, on in this website called Midcurrent that uh, right. called Ask the Experts, which I hate to even say that because the word expert makes me nervous, but that's what it's called, and I've really enjoyed that and. Uh, Let's see what else is going on. Well, we've got our website, of course. Carol does, has done a great job on that, my wife. And uh, so that's skipmorrisflytying.com. Uh, skipmorrisflytying.com, okay. Yeah. No dashes or anything? Well, it's, if you if you want to get get the address right, it's skip-morris-fly-tying.com. Okay. Right. And other than that, I'm just uh, starting to get calls for another season of speaking, and uh, okay. I'm going to be going to be at the Wasatch Show, and uh, I'm trying to remember where that is. It's, I, that's embarrassing. Is it Wyoming or Utah? Do you happen to know? Wasatch Show? No. Yeah, it's a Wasatch big one. Is... It's a oh. big one. I didn't really know about till they called me, and then all of a sudden, all my fellow speakers started talking about it. So huh. that's a big okay. one, and. Uh, and other stuff's coming up, and my wife Carol's speaking quite a bit for clubs and sometimes for shows as on uh, photography. She's my photographer and illustrator for my books, and yeah. that I think is pretty much it. Yeah, great, great. Do you speak at clubs as well? Oh yeah, all the time. Okay. <laughs> yep, Good. I speak Good. at fly fishing clubs and fly fishing events, and I teach workshops and all that stuff. Okay, so and people can get a hold of you through your website. I take it contact information there and everything. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. SkipMorrisFlyTying.com, right, with hyphens. Yep, that's it. Okay, good. Hyphens. All right. <laughs> okay, thanks for sharing. Um, yeah, thanks for asking. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, so let's talk about, uh, you, you, I was going to ask you about when they start uh, as far as seasonally. And I think in your book you talk about it depends, uh, you know, whether you're, far west coast or into the Rocky Mountains and, and so forth. So, And by the way, when we're talking salmon flies and golden stones, those are specific to the, the western states, correct? Yeah, the ones that we call, that we norm, that people normally think of, salmon fly and golden stone, they are western hatches. But um, I was surprised when I was doing this book. I was doing a lot of research. And even though I fished the thing quite a lot, both those hatches, a fair amount, I... I just, you know, really dug in, which I like to do. That's the way I like to do a book. I, um, no guesswork. But um, I did find out that there are some big eastern stones that look a lot like, and now I'm trusting my memory. Maybe you remember, Roger, but as I recall, there's a there's an eastern version of the salmon fly and an eastern version of the golden stone. Is that what I say in there? 
Because <laughs> I, I know you mentioned that when we talked a little bit earlier. Yeah, yeah. But I think Somebody that's right. asked about that. Yeah, um, and they, what I remember about them is that they, they're very different in the time that they hatch and the way that the hatches are fished. And I, I haven't done anything with those eastern hatches, but I, I think that would be really interesting to look into. Yeah, yeah, that could be uh, get somebody that's more knowledgeable in on the East Coast and uh, and see how that that could be a good companion show to this one uh, for sure. I'll have to look yeah. into that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so tell us about you know seasonally when they when the hatches start you know on the West Coast. Well, you were right. The uh, the closer you are to the West Coast, the earlier they hatch and. And I've never seen them as early as April, but I understand that in the Cascade Mountains out here in the west that they can start that early. Um, then you get further east, and it can be uh, later in June. Um, this July, well, actually it was June. I take that back. This June, we at the tail end of June, we were over in western Montana. I was doing a, a show over there, and then we stuck around and fished for a couple of weeks. And we just missed them. You know, they come, uh, they typically come, as I understand it, around mid-June. But then you, I think if you get further west, like Yellowstone country, they could even be a little bit later. And it's going to vary. So it could be, as, typically it's going to be sometime in May around here, and then you go east further, and it's going to be a month later, something like that. But, um, you know, you can't just put it on your calendar and show up, because if they came off on June, if they start coming off on June 3rd this year, they might start coming off on, you know, May 29th, or they might come off, start coming off on June 18th next year because, you know, it depends on what kind of winter they have and, and what kind of spring you have and the water height. And, and a lot of it I think we don't understand, but the, the point is as, as the weather, the way the weather plays out and the river conditions play out over the period of a year, the salmon fly or golden stone hatch can come considerably earlier than normal or later than normal. Okay, okay. Um, and it's only it's only in the spring, early summer that they hatch. That's one hatching period for the year, unlike you know blue wing olives or, or something like that that are hatching throughout the year. Well, you know, insect hatches are as crazy as fish, and fish are as crazy as people. And I just I you know, you can't figure any of those three out ever. Um, I have seen like the metolius in in Oregon breaks all the rules. I mean, normally, yes, what you just said is accurate. They, they're they a late spring, early summer hatcher, and they go for two or three weeks, and then they're done. But, um, you know, like the Metolius, which is a fast-moving spring creek down in Oregon. I used to fish it quite a lot when I lived down in Oregon. The Golden Stone Hatch gets going in late June, and then it goes, I think, if I remember correctly, all the way into October, which yeah. is insane. Yeah. But there you go, you know, and then when you've got, so that's a spring creek. That may be part of the reason because it's so consistent in, in height and flow and all that, or height and, and temperature. But, you know, bugs are crazy. I, I've seen this other places and, and not with not with spring creeks or tailwaters either. I, I mean, I, not with the salmon fly but I've, or golden stone rather, but I've, I've seen green drakes hatching all summer into October in one river I can think of, and they're not supposed to last very long either. Right, so, right. Bugs are nuts, you know. They're just crazy so, as the rest of us. So the best thing is to check local sources probably and find out, you know, how they behave in that local area to, to really get dialed in. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, local knowledge 
and personal experience, time logged in is, you know, some of the most valuable stuff you can have going to fish for anything anywhere. Right, uh, right. Yeah. It's pretty hard to beat that. So, yeah, yeah the, I agree. Uh, and then I, I would also uh, suggest that people are really trying to hit these hatches to uh, to stay on, to keep getting online and see, you know, what the fly shops say, give them a call, that kind of thing, and see what's going to happen there, what seems to be happening their particular year. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. I mean, we're, you know, I'm in the Rocky Mountains, and, um, you know, that snowpack can be so different, and the rain and <laughs> heat, and, you know, every year is different. Every year is different. No kidding. Nothing's predictable here, yeah, so. Yeah, and the extremes uh, seem to be greater than ever. Yeah, sometimes, you know, it seems like there's no spring at all. You know, you just go from, like, winter into summer. <laughs> you know, and other oh, times no. you have these too long, two, two month long rainy spring, and you go, well, what the heck? But, um, yeah, yeah, you can't tell. Do these two hatches, um, do they overlap? Can you be yeah. fishing for both at the same time? Well, it's, yes, they do. And that's great when that happens because then, you know, instead of getting two or three weeks, you might get three or maybe even pushing four. But um, but then some places, typically what happens, well, this is what I understand, is typically what happens is the salmon fly comes first, and then sometime once it gets going, the golden stones start, start showing up. But on the lower Deschutes, for example, um, they seem to come about the same time, in my experience. Hmm. Okay. So, okay. Yeah, complete overlap. I mean. <laughs> yeah, um, got it questions coming in on the internet now. One is very specific to this. Uh, James uh, Dubies uh, in, in Wyoming, uh, he writes in and says, uh, to, to time when a hatch may start, have you ever tried using the budding of local plant species? Like where I live in Wyoming, when the wild rose blooms, the giant stone will be hatching in our local rivers. You know, I don't have a good answer for that because I've never really studied that kind of thing. But um, some people swear by it that the that if the you know what the plants do follows what the insects do. But I'm afraid I'm just kind of ignorant about that. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, right? it's an, I'm sure there's some science to that because you know plants um, do things based upon moisture and heat, you know, temperature. Sure. Uh, and and maybe. Some plants like it just like the bugs do, like the fish do, you know. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, um, I'm sure there's something to that, James. Uh, thanks for sharing that. That's interesting. Uh, he also wrote in earlier, James did, and said, uh, notable angler Bob Jacklin from Western, West Yellowstone, uh, Montana, once commented that rather than representing a reliable, viable fishing fishable hatch, the big stones generally represent the start of a season when you can start using large stonefly imitations, both nymphs and dries, as searching patterns. Can you please comment on that? Well, I think that's. I think Bob makes a good point. Um, you know, and I didn't. I wanted to be as honest and accurate as I could in this book, and so that's why in the book I say something that's mm, similar, not quite that strong, but um, you know, you can you can fish. Salmon fly, well, golden stonefly and to a lesser degree salmon fly hatches quite a bit and sometimes find very good fishing and a lot of times find just good fishing and sometimes find lousy fishing. 
but um, it's you'd think with these giant bugs that the trout would just go berserk, but um, there, for a number of reasons, probably some we don't understand, uh, the fishing can slow down during these during these hatches, and I think one reason is the bugs, the fish just get say they get just stuffed, you know, they get kind of tired of them. It's like if you or I ordered the same thing off a off a Thai restaurant menu for three meals a day, you know, pretty soon we'd look at that particular dish and we'd go, oh, no. Um, and plus their belly. No, no I really it. like I really like pod Thai. I could. <laughs> Could you do that three times a day forever? <laughs> I don't know about three times a day. <laughs> well, and this but, is one but, reason yeah. Yeah, I couldn't. <laughs> but that's good. I'm glad we know what you like. Cause, um, yeah, that and pizza. Pizza I can eat a lot of. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah, those go together well, yeah. too, by the way. Maybe people don't know that. but They, they um, go together well. <laughs> yeah, we, that's what we serve to guests or the, that combination. But... But, uh, you know, this is why the beginning of the salmon fly hatch, if you're going, or, or golden stone hatch, if you're dry fly fishing, can often be some of the best fishing because the fish aren't stuffed with them yet and they're excited about them. And then some very good fishing can sometimes be had after the hatch is basically over. And the trout, you know, I, probably some people will laugh when I say this, but I've seen this a number of times. They get trained, you know. I mean, I know they got a pea brain, but, but they will... If you want to call it memory, that's fine, but they'll keep coming back and, and doing the same thing and looking for those bugs after the bugs are basically gone until they finally go, well, I give up, they're gone. And so yeah, sometimes, yeah. and then they're getting hungry again. Um, yeah. But this is what I will say. I mean, I think Bob Jacklin has a good point, and I've talked with Bob a little bit about this on the show circuit. Um, you know, it, it can the fishing, especially for the salmon fly, can be overblown a bit. People expect miracles and I gotta say, and Bob, I've heard Bob say this too. In fact, he says it on this video he sent me, this DVD. When you have a great day on the salmon flies or the golden stones, it's it's epic. I mean, I, I had a day like that on the Deschutes once, and usually those are going to come when you have that those really tight clouds overhead and everything's still, and and it feels kind of sultry and. Um, but, oh, Lord, I had a day on the Deschutes once that I, I know I won't forget. And it just, wherever I wanted to throw an imitation of a salmon fly, there was a really nice trout waiting there to grab it. I threw it in places there shouldn't have been a trout, and where I could have sworn there wasn't one, and I caught a trout. I mean, it just, oh, wow. for hours, yeah. it was unbelievable. But you could fish a lot of times and not run into that. Yeah, yeah. It's not an easy button still. Uh, it's fishing. <laughs> No, you got to go out there and, and uh, yeah. you know, just hope that you get one of those great days or at least a good day. And, yeah. and you can get a good day, for sure. Yeah, 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 good. Uh, let's take another quick break, Skip, and then we'll come right back and we'll, we'll dig into more about uh, how to fish for these uh, fish using these flies. So um, uh, stick with me and we'll be right back. Looking for that shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit whipraykeyfishinglodge.com. 
That's Whip Ray and then C-A-Y-E, FishingLodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Skip Morris about salmon flies and golden stones. If you'd like to ask Skip a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. And we'll try to answer as many of those questions tonight as, as we can. Okay, Skip. Um, so what you know? What are the types of water where you're going to find salmon flies and golden stones? Uh, I notice you you created a, a quick list of rivers in multiple states that uh, and uh, provinces everywhere from California, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon. Utah, Washington, Wyoming, Alberta, British Columbia. Um, so they're, they're really kind of all over the place, right? They really are all over the West. I mean, you know, from California up to way up into B.C. and, and East, you know, way over there in Colorado. And, um, yeah, that, you know, when you, when you say those things, I, I remember how much research I did for this book, checking, double-checking, and triple-checking everything. But, uh, yeah, running down sample rivers in, in all the Western states was was a handful, but yeah, they, they hatch in a lot of places, and, and again, you know, you're going to find a bunch of, uh, typically a bunch of golden stone hatches for every salmon fly hatch you find, but as far as what kind of water, you're talking about what kind of places in the river, is that is that what you're asking, Roger? Yeah, um, that as well, um, you know, when we're, when we're looking at the river, uh, you know, and I'm, like you said earlier, if we're fishing dries, I'm, you gave the impression that they could be almost anywhere uh, because the, the dries get dispersed throughout the river. But what about the, the nymphs? You know, are there particular lies, particular types of water that they're more prevalent in? Yeah, the nymphs are pretty easy. And I should say, because I'll forget if I don't see it now, <laughs> that, that you're exactly right. Uh, the adults end up in just about any place around the river, and the trout know it. And so the trout will be in... in almost dead slow water sometimes waiting for an adult to drop and sometimes they'll be out and I've seen them out in water that was so white I couldn't believe that the trout would even be there and I've had one come shooting up after a salmon fly imitation so the adults as you say can drop in, onto the water about anywhere they don't know where they are in relation to the right. you know kind of the parts of the river they're they're near but the nymphs are pretty simple they they live in at least relatively quick water and the reason for that is that they um uh, the way I understand it, they're not very good at breathing. They need the, the movement of the water to do it a lot of it for them. They have external gills on their underside of their thorax, and uh, they really need that water to be moving along. It doesn't have to be, I'm not talking, you know, just crazy swift water, although I think that probably you'd find some in there. But um, they need a current at a, a pretty fair clip just to survive. So that's where they, they are. Where you find them, so you're not fishing uh, fishing deep pools and uh, and you know long slow runs and stuff, but you're looking for a little oxygenated oxygenated water with oxygen in it. <laughs> yes, oxygenated water, right? Water, oxygenated water, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So riffles, you know, nice riffles and stuff. You're you're more than likely to do better there. Right, riffles, the heads of pools, all that kind of stuff. Maybe, maybe the head of a run where it's still got some some good motion to it. But yeah, not frog water or even slow water. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John Sanders in Bellingham, Washington, uh, 
ask, is it reasonable? Is it a reasonable assumption that if a river in the northwest is a freestone river, that it will have a population of golden stoneflies? You know, that's what I used to think, but my experience has been that there are some places that I don't think have golden stones. We have a river not very far from where I live, and it's it's got real minimal trout fishing. It's a pretty river, but um, it uh, I haven't seen a golden stone in it. I've, I've turned rocks, I've, I've looked for the adults, and I don't believe I have seen a golden stone on it. So I think, I, I long ago I used to think that was true, that every every creek, stream, and river had some at least some golden stones. Now I'm not sure that's true, but... Um, I think it's it's safe to say that not certainly not every piece of moving water has a significant number of them. Yeah. But a lot yeah. do. A lot do. Yeah. And I think maybe if you got more towards Montana, you know, got got out of the the west side of the Cascades where I live, you might find that almost every piece of water holds one or well, the golden stone, yeah. But I don't know that for sure. That'd be an interesting study, but um and also along that same line, I guess some rivers might have one or the other, right? But not necessarily both. My impression is that it would be rare to find a river with salmon flies that didn't also hold golden stones. Oh, and I haven't okay. I haven't run across that yet. I certainly, as I as I said, I've run a lot run across a lot of rivers that hold golden stones but not salmon flies. Okay. But yeah, I think I don't think you'd have salmon flies without golden stones. But that you know because I said that somebody will. <laughs> inform me that I'm dead wrong about it because, as I say, it's, this stuff is just so hard to pin down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Craig in Portland, um, Oregon, uh, wrote in and says, I have often read that a couple of weeks after the main frenzy of the salmon fly hatch could be the best time to fish this hatch. Do you agree? And if so, about how long afterwards? Um, I had a, a Deschutes River guide tell me once that he figured up to maybe about 10 days after the bulk of the insects were gone that trout were still moving into the same spots that they had, had moved into, at least some trout were, into the same spots they had moved into during the hatch to look for the adults. And they were there, and their bellies were starting to get empty, and they were going to go. So, uh, yes, it can be a very good time to fish it. It's basically after the hatch is diminished to the point that it's, it's on its way out. But, you know, the fish are going to do what they want to do, so you never yeah. know. Uh, James up in Wyoming wrote in on the Internet here another question, uh, and, and this is local, so you might not be familiar with it, but he says in western Wyoming they have a species of golden stone uh, locally known as the midnight stone, hmm. Calicenia sabulosa. Uh, this bug hatches at night throughout the late summer period, Late summer period, so that's interesting, right? Really? When uh, when they hatch, they are almost white, while the nymph is dark brown and the adult is brownish olive. Have you ever had any success using cream-colored stonefly imitations? So obviously that might work there. But. Uh, well, I have had success using cream-colored um, nymphs the size of stoneflies, but but then you're talking about a, a nymph that's just, I'm trying to remember how instars work. But anyway, it's molted, and they, they're white or kind of actually more of a tan, maybe even a little bit of yellowish after they've molted. But that's the nymph. As far as the yeah. adult, because um, he's saying that when they first hatch, they're whitish? When they hatch, they are almost white, while wow. the nymph is dark brown. Wow. The adult is brownish olive, so there's a, evidently an intermediate stage there right after they hatch. 
hmm. uh, that that their color is changing evidently from well interesting white dark yeah. brownish olive yeah so, well I know there yeah. there are other big stoneflies that are far less common than the salmon fly and the golden stone. Uh, there's one around here they call a summer stone, and I'm wondering if that's the same one. I don't know that hatch very well at all. But, yeah. um, boy, it's an interesting question. Yeah. I wish I had an yeah. equally interesting answer. <laughs> I yeah, again, know. James, thanks for sharing that uh, that information. So you, you'll have to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or maybe you have already, and you can share that with us. But uh, um, So let's talk about fishing nymphs here. Uh, how do you rig up to fish these flies? You know, do you fish one at a time? Do you use a two-fly rig? What, what do you do? Um, I normally don't fish when I'm when I really think that the fish are looking for salmon fly nymphs. I'm I'm pretty satisfied chucking around one great big super heavy nymph and trying to not to get caught in the ear or something. So I usually fish one, and I fish with an indicator. And uh, yeah, it's simple as that. I I have experimented with fishing uh, nymphs in general, but also salmon fly nymphs on full sinking lines, that kind of stuff, and swinging them. Uh, so far, I haven't had a lot of success with that, but I'm still looking into that. Um, in the past, some anglers, uh, like I believe it was Charles Brooks, um, advocated that kind of thing and apparently did it quite a bit. But for the most part, I and I think most anglers are, are still you know, fishing a, a strike indicator. And, and I'll go with one nymph. But if you're on a, a big, powerful river like the Deschutes, uh, a lot of times you've got a very heavy nymph, and you've got three big split shot on your, you know, on your tippet, and that's just what it takes to get that thing down there. Yeah, you want to be right on the bottom with those. You want to be close. Yeah, and I mean the fish are taking them. I'm sure they come in along the edges, especially well, they almost have to in really high water, and sometimes you get really high water as we did this year around the time of the salmon fly. At least most places did. And then some years, you know, it's a dry winter and whole different conditions. But I have seen salmon fly nymphs just crowded into a shallows. And I mean a shallows just inches deep, too, too shallow for a decent trout to go into. But it, it certainly suggests that the trout at least swing up and, and take a look at what's going on in the shallows now and then. Because, you know, that was a lot of salmon flies crowded together. I'll never forget, you know, that particular time there were so many of them just bunched up. Um, but I don't normally fish that shallow with a nymph when I fish the salmon fly before the salmon fly hatch really gets going that first week or ten days or whatever it is when they're looking for the nymphs and the nymphs haven't really started hatching much yet. Um, I just, you know, I fish pretty much just quicker water and that's about it. I mean, I, you know, I always I always fish right up about as shallow as trout will go when I fish a nymph out to as deep as I can reach that I think the trout will, yeah. water trout will be in. So that really isn't change. Yeah. John Sanders uh, asked another question. He says, stonefly patterns are often heavily weighted to get them to the bottom, but it seems to me that the weight makes them drift unnaturally, as the naturals tumble along kind of helplessly. Do you agree with this? And if so, how have you solved this presentation issue? Well, you know, he makes a real good point, and this is that's something that's that's a debate that's been going on for probably longer than I've been alive, or at least as long, which is quite a while. And that's whether weighted nymphs behave properly, and uh, and you know, it's it's a, there's certainly logic behind the idea that they don't. Um, the thing is with the with the salmon fly and the golden stone, is they live in quick water. Um, I have seen 
salmon flies even in little creeks. I've actually seen them in decent numbers, but it's rare. Usually they tend to be in larger streams. And so you're trying, and then they live in fast water, so you're trying to get your fly down there in this quick water that's in a larger stream where it's going to be, you know, more powerful typically and deeper than a smaller stream. And so I think two things in the end. One is it's a lot easier to get a weighted fly down than an unweighted fly. And two, that water's moving pretty darn quick. And for the trout to be able to really identify whether the nymph is, your artificial nymph is moving properly in the water, behaving properly, it's going to be a lot harder for them in that quick water than it is in slow water. So I just use really heavy flies. Really heavy flies, yeah? Yeah. That's, and then add additional weight on the line? That's Often, yeah. Well, anytime yeah. you nymph fish, you know, you're tossing your nymph not that far upstream. It's You've got to get it to sink through all that water. And usually by the time it's right in front of you is when it's finally really down with the trout. So. Right. You know, if that's the big challenge in nymphing a stream is is just trying to get the darn thing down to the trout. Yeah, yeah, and I, I've, I've mentioned this on other shows in the past where I was fishing a, a run down on the, the San Juan River in New Mexico, and whenever we floated that run, we always picked up fish in there. Um, and But we were able to get it deep and keep it deep throughout mm-hmm. the run. And then the yeah. following day, I went out there, and there was a long flat next to this run. So I waded out in the flat and tried to fish that run. I could not keep it down deep enough to get a fish. Um, yeah. And it, it just, you know, it's like you can't get there from here. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, so, And I figured, hey, you know, I mean, with the drift, you keep it down there for, you know, 50 yards or so. You know, with when you're fishing it from the shore, then you might get a few feet. <laughs> really on the bottom where it's really prime territory, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. It's uh, it's hard to get it down there. Now, do you use a specific knot to tie on your nymphs um, in, in along the lines of movement, like loop knot, or do you just use a clinch knot or anything specific? Well, you know, before I answer that, can I ask you something, Roger? I think if I understand correctly, you're saying that when you were fishing the, the San Juan, you were casting out, and then the boat was drifting as you were fishing, so you could leave that indicator out there for a long time and cover a lot of water? Deep, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, because some places, like the Deschutes, you can't, you're not allowed to fish from the boat. You have to stop oh, the boat oh. and get out. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. You Well, at least uh, New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, you can fish from the boat, yeah. Most places, yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's that's. I think that's almost unique to the Deschutes. But I just, I just want to make sure. Okay, what kind yeah, of? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting because, uh, of course, in in some places like Wyoming and Colorado, you can't get out of the boat on private land. So you have to. Oh, fish. sure. So different in Montana. So the you know the laws are uh, uh, different in each state. Anyway, yeah. So back to the knot. <laughs> um, yeah. I well, you know. I tie on all my nymphs now with loop knot. And, you know, the one that most people know is the mono loop knot. But um, if you attach a, if you tie a nymph on with, say, a, an improved clinch, and then you tie this, an identical nymph on to identical tippet with a loop knot, it's, it's amazing how much freer the one with the loop knot is. I mean, that's basically just a free, well-oiled hinge. And when you attach, when you use something like a, like a, improved clinch, that tippet just welds to the fly, and the fly has right. to bend the tippet in order to move. So, yeah, I always use a loop knot on the fly. 
Yeah, okay, okay. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, you know, a, a lot of people do like to fish two flies um, during that hatch just to see what the what the trout really want and or give themselves twice the chance of bumping into a fish and they'll they'll use a dropper system which can which is great but can always be a big tangle or if they want to take less risk they'll use a trailer rig and run a, a usually a smaller fly off the off some tippet off the bend of the upper fly's hook and you could fish two stones that way or with the dropper system but uh, I just it's such a big nymph to be thrown around to start with <laughs> I yeah, usually do go you with find, just the, you just find the you have one. to zero in on the size do they not really care? You know, um, that's actually, there are a lot of really good questions, and that's one of them. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, it's, my experience has been this, which is a, is a funny thing about, about trout. It seems like, it seems as though in the middle, the middle range of, of insect sizes is where they get the pickiest, the 14 down to the 16 or 18. And then if you get below that, it seems to be hard for them to notice the details, although with the really super picky trout, I will use a very detailed fly, even in size 20. But when you get into the biggest flies and the biggest insects, then it's it's like sort of the opposite thing. I mean, size, the size of the fly does matter with tiny flies, but the details seem to matter less with tiny flies than with mid-range size flies. But then when you get into the really big flies, it seems like neither of those things matters as much. It's almost like the, the old saying about the forest for the trees, you know, they, right. it's, it's as though they can't comprehend this great big thing and really, you know, lock it into their brains. They just know that it's big. And so, um, yeah. and so no, I don't typically find that's true. Um, it probably is more true with nymphs where they get a better look at it. But I have a tendency to try to go smaller if I can because I'm perfectly happy catching a 12 or a 14-inch brown or rainbow. And if I fish a size two or a size four nymph or dry fly, I probably will not hook them. And if I do hook them, I might hurt them. So I hope I don't. But um, if I can go down to uh, eight or even a 10, 2X long, I get a real good shot at getting a 12 or a 14-inch trout hooked. And the thing is, you get, you know, with the salmon flies and the golden stones, you've with the adults anyway, you've got two different sizes because you get the male and the female. And so, you know, I just, I might even go a smidge smaller than the, than the smaller one just because it'll be easier to fish and I'll get more, more good hookups. Okay, okay. Uh, Dino in Michigan asks, is there any time to fish nymph imitations away from the bottom, suspended or swinging them? Um, I have never found a situation, well, you've got to remember that the, these, these stoneflies don't swim up, and, and we're so used to that with other insects like caddisflies and mayflies. Not all of them. There are caddisflies that crawl out and mayflies that crawl out. But for the most part, caddis and mayflies and midges, they just swim right up to the surface and pop out. And so then it makes sense sometimes to fish the mid-range. But with the big stoneflies, they crawl out. And so they never, they don't end up in that mid-range. I'm not saying you couldn't fish there and catch fish. You know, there's, there's always, there are always lots of exceptions to everything. But uh, yeah. for the most part, no. Um, however, one possible exception, which I haven't had much experience with, is when they get drowned. And uh, some people do fish big wet flies, you know, a foot or two down, and apparently do very well with them. Mm, okay, okay. Yeah, so I guess um, that's a yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, during the hatch, when do you switch from uh, 
fishing uh, nymphs to going to the dries? Uh, or do you, do you w w yeah, what, what's your determining factors on, on using either or during a, a hatching period? You know, that's something that, that I really wondered about, um, and I suspected I knew the answer, but I, I did some sniffing around, and, and from people who, who know the hatch, those hatches better than I do, the general answer I got was you switch from nymph, from a, the, imitating the nymphs, you switch from concentrating on the nymphs to concentrating on the surface when the trout do. So easy answer. <laughs> okay. And it, when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but oh, the trout, you know, you got to kind of you got to experiment and see what works um, because, you know, it might take the trout a little while after there are lots of adults around to to get off the nymphs, um, and you know, the, there's going to come a point. I mean, the nymphs are going to they're going to be less and less available as more of them have hatched, and the adults are going to be more are going to be more and more available as more of the nymphs hatch. So there is a flip period where they where they go from one to the other overall but um, here's the interesting thing is and, and a lot of fly fishers don't think about this but but I've seen this written before and I found it, I found it to be absolutely true um, fish trout included are individuals and I've especially noticed that with trout and I mean I, I remember recently fishing at Spring Creek where one fish took up one little area he didn't care about the hatches or anything he liked where he was and he fed on what he fed on and the other fish a lot of them would go out for these hatches and he just sit there going, nope, I like where I am. And, and trout will do that. So, you know, there probably are trout that feed on the nymphs almost all the way through the hatches and others that ignore the nymphs when that's the majority of what is available and, and grab those very few adults that are coming down. This is what I mean. Trout or fish are just as crazy as people and bugs. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's take another quick break, and then we'll come back and talk about fishing dries a bit and uh, – have you give us some recommendations on, on flies. So uh, stick with me, and we'll be back in just uh, 30 seconds or so. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Upper Delaware in New York and fund projects that collect valuable data on about fish and their habitats like the peacock bass study in Miami, Florida. FFI's core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Skip Morris about salmon flies and golden stones. If you'd like to ask Skip a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com, and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay, Skip, talking about the dries now, uh, I've been watching the fish. They switched up, so I'm going for dries now. Is there any particular way that you rig a length of leader, tippet, uh, 
size of your tippet and so forth for for the uh, drives? Well, there's there's really nothing magical, Rob Roger. I mean, it's it's kind of what you would expect. I usually go with a nine foot leader and about three feet of three X for a dry fly for this kind of hatch. I always tend to go one one X heavier than most people on just about everything. <laughs> Although I have fished down to eight X and even ten X when I had to, so it's not that I don't believe in light and fine tippet, but um, you know, they're big flies, it's easy to snap them off and, and you tend to move big fish with them. So if I especially if I'm fishing in choppy water, it would be a nine foot two uh, X leader and then three feet of three X standard tippet. Okay. Okay. And I should you, say I would also use a loop knot with the dry fly. I'm using that a lot with larger dry flies these days. Oh, okay. Yeah, good tip. And um, do you do you ever is there any reason to fish a dry dropper rig? Um, well, you know, the best reason in the world would be that it might outfish not having a dropper rig. Because <laughs> you, again, you know, it just as I have said, it's. You never know what the fish are going to want or really know what they're going to want or what they're going to do. And, you know, when I think about it, that's a good thing to mention is that if you come during the salmon fly hatch and you fish a salmon fly nymph and a salmon fly adult and you don't see very many salmon flies around and you're not catching hardly any fish, don't get, you know, don't get caught up in the glamour of the salmon fly or the golden stone to the point that you're not seeing what's actually going on because the fish might not be on them at all. They might be on midges or pale morning duns or something like that and and you're just slamming away with that big salmon fly day after day and hour after hour and not catching anything and that's why is because you've you've kind of lost your perspective so i say yeah. i say keep that perspective yeah get tunnel vision and uh, you're focused on one thing and can't again see the forest for the trees right so yeah so yeah, true yeah and i've done it boy have i done it yeah yeah okay um yeah, because it just seems like uh, some of the imitations for where the dry stones uh, and salmon flies are nice <laughs> for a dry dropper situation, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. So I guess, mm -hmm. yeah, if it's slowing up, uh, you might you want to tie something on that, that you think is more applicable given the situation and, and use that because you still may get a hit on that on that uh, that dry as well. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean it as you say, especially if the fishing's not not as fast as you think it should be, then absolutely. I mean, that's always a yeah. good reason to experiment. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of like a lake down here by my house. I was fishing, and I thought I knew what was coming off on the top, uh, but I wasn't getting any hits. I tried a, uh, a dropper, a caddis uh, um, uh, dropper on that, and then I started picking up fish. So mm -hmm. I was misreading the rises, you know. And uh, once I figured that out, then I was starting to get the fish. So, uh, yeah, it goes to, to what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> um, and when you're fishing these dries, uh, Ed Constantini in Wisconsin, he wrote in and says, when fishing stonefly emergence, uh, would you tend to fish more shallow stream edges, for example, since the mature nymphs migrate towards shore to molt? Well, not because of that. Um, because he's talking about dries, right? Right. Yeah, no, not because of that. Um, and, and that gets back to what I was saying about how the stonefly hatches versus how the mayfly hatches, for example, a typical mayfly. But um, no, not, not for that reason, but um, mainly because the sandflies are, are, and golden stones are crawling and, and trying to mate and, and just nervously 
you know, bouncing around the grasses and the tree limbs and everything along the shoreline, and they fall in out of clumsiness, and they fall in because wind, and I guess that would be the main two reasons, but when they fall in, they fall close to shore typically. But, uh, you know, a current might just whip them out in, in a matter of a few seconds, the, the current that's yeah. curling its way out. So I'd say from about, typically from about 10 or 12 feet out, right up to right up against shore, right up against shore, would be your normal range, but I wouldn't hesitate to throw a salmon fly or a golden stone imitation way out into the river. Yeah. And sometimes that works. Kind of fish it like a terrestrial, all right. I mean, yeah, who yeah, knows where they're going to end up. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, describe, you know, a, a typical day on the river, you know, when insects are have been hatching and, you know, how, how you would go about your day, uh, you know, getting up, you know, first thing in the morning. Uh, what would your approach, knowing you're in the middle of a, a salmon fly or golden stone hatch? Well, I guess, you know, I, I typically start, if, it's gonna, if I'm going to make a whole day out of it, I start fishing uh, in the morning with nymphs. And if it's early enough in the salmon fly hatch or golden stone hatch, I'll fish. I'll try salmon fly and golden stone nymph imitations, but I'll keep an open mind. Uh, try other things if those don't work very well. And then later on the day, I'm going to pray that there that it's cloudy, because that's going to make the odds of having good dry fly salmon fly fishing or golden stone fishing so much better than if it's a bright sun. Um, and if it is a bright sun. Um, I'll still try throwing the, the golden stones and salmon flies, and I'll try especially throwing them anywhere there's shade. But uh, it could be slow, and it and it could end up that I end up that I wind up nymphing all day, and it might not even not even be with imitations of either of those two big stone flies. But I'll tell you this: when it starts, when the shadows start getting really long, that's when I'm going to do most of my dry fly fishing. Typically, unless it, okay, unless I get that cloudy day when really the light's low all day. But if it's been a bright day. That's what I'm going to concentrate on is, is when it starts to get towards evening and the shadows get long, and, and then the fish are going to really be bold. And that's true not just with, with golden stones. That's kind of your evening rise thing. But, but during the golden stone and salmon fly hatches, uh, that is a great time to fish the dry fly. So the, the cloudy day thing, um, are you talking specifically about salmon flies and golden stones or just in general about you know, about fishing, um, doing better if it's cloudy? Well, I would say definitely the salmon fly and golden stone, but I would say also in general, yes, whether it's midges or mayflies or whatever. I mean, the bugs like it, so you get better hatches, and that's not, you know, the salmon fly and golden stone have already hatched, so it's, that's not really the case. But, um, but yeah, with other bugs, they, they hatch better, and the trout know that it's much harder for predators to zero in on them, so they they feed much more boldly and are more willing to come to the surface. Okay, okay, good. Um, okay, uh, so let's talk. We only have a few minutes left here, but let's talk about um, uh, some different fly patterns. Uh, first first off, do you like realistic patterns or more suggestive patterns? I've seen well, you know, really it, realistic stone fly. <laughs> well, so, I do tie one that so far I haven't been able to get uh, solitude fly company to pick up <laughs> but I too tie uh, what I call the anat my anatomical golden stone and my anatomical salmon fly and they're in the book it, um, I don't know if you have that handy or not but yeah um, I do I have it oh okay 
Yeah, I don't know the page number, but but they're in there. They would be, of course, under A. <laughs> but they're uh, they're pretty detailed. I mean, they almost look like a realistic pattern. And I have had some really good luck with those, especially in places that are hard fished. Um, some of the harder fish parts of the Metolius River in Oregon, for example. I mean that that thing is one campground after another, and it gets pounded. But but this fly sometimes. You know, I, I'm actually not that big a believer in in super detailed, you know, semi-realistic flies. But when they work, when they're when they're appropriate, they they can really make a difference. Um, on in general, though, I tend to fish. Well, I tend to fish flies that you have to tie yourself at this point because um, I'm there, there again. I'm trying to get the fly company to pick up some of these. But I mean, the obvious choices are things like the. Pat's rubber legs, you know, everybody knows about that these days, and mm-hmm. and the stimulator, of course, for the adult. Um, I fish for the adult. I fish a fly that's in this book, but I've modified it a little bit since then, called the Skip's Promise, and I tie that for the golden stone and for the salmon fly. And if you want to see the pattern for the for that, um, you can go to uh, Midcurrent and look up a an article and ask the experts that somebody asked me. Tell me what your favorite, what the what five dry flies you fish the most are, and that was one of them. So I put the dressing in there. Mm-hmm. And how have you changed it since uh, you wrote the book? You know, the only real change is that I put a hackle on the abdomen, and I oh, found okay. a real fast way to do that. But it just made it more buoyant, quite a bit more buoyant. Okay, kind of a palmer hackle up there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and then reinforced the the way that it is on an Alcare caddis, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. I see you've got a um, bunch of foam flies as well in here. Yeah, um, yeah, those can be great. Um, no longer can you get the uh, one of my patterns in there that's called the Morris foam uh, stones. Yeah, but Morris foam golden stone and Morris foam salmon fly. Right. They're no longer available commercially, but you can tie them yourself, and the book has all the details. Yep. In fact, there's a, there's a whole page on each of them so that you get get all the tying information. But I fish those a lot, and those catch fish. So would you lean towards, if you're going to lean one way or the other, would you lean towards foam or more uh, towards the natural materials? Boy, I'm always changing my mind. <laughs> I, mean, I like the foam. It looks pretty natural uh, for the most part. Well, but yeah, the, the Morris foam stones—they uh, just—you can fish the same fly all day without yeah. ever, ever breaking out the, you know, the floatant. They just float like crazy, and and they look real. They really look real, and and I think that becomes important when you've got trout that are in the slow water picking off salmon flies because they get a real good look at what they're eating. And then it would, you know, there's some, there's certainly some benefit to that, having that really convincing outline. Um, although I've caught an awful lot of trout on that Skip's Promise, and it's, although it does have four distinct legs, I mean, it actually, it's a pretty convincing outline as well. Yeah. So that's yeah. not much, that's really not much of an answer. <laughs> but yeah. I don't think yeah, it's yeah, any better. Getting to sound like work. a politician on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm dodging here. I, I admit it. <laughs> Than just making something no up. commitment, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we, we did have a couple of, well, like uh, James up in Wyoming that, that wrote in a couple other questions. Thanks, James, for being so prolific about your questions. 
Uh, he, he says, please recommend specific styles of flies for different type water types and describe the attributes of the pattern that make it ideal for that water type. So that's kind of an interesting question based upon what we've just discussed. It is. Any comments on that? Well, I mean, that's especially with uh, with dry flies and emergers, that's always a consideration is the kind of water that you're fishing. Is it is it clear or is it got some color to it? Is it fast or is it slow, which is probably the biggest one of all? Um, you know, I mean, even if it's deep or not or shallow. But um, I think the main thing is if you've got clear water and it's not fast, you know, you're going to be better off with, with dry flies that have a, a convincing outline. Um, you know, you take the stimulator, it's super popular, and that's because it's been very successful, but that's not the fly that I would choose for for trout that we're feeding in the slower water because it just doesn't really sit down on the water with its body on the water like a real stone fly, um, and it, it doesn't have a, a few heavy legs. It's got just lots of hackle everywhere. On the other right. hand, it's a popular fly for good reason, and, and a lot of people fish it for the, for those hatches, and it would be a for water that's medium fast to fast, it would be probably an excellent choice. So yeah, I you know I'd go with something more like um, you know my Morris foam or or some other foam stone that has rubber legs that kind of thing for the slower water and especially if it's clear oh. water. Uh, as far as nymphs okay. go, you know I think you're almost always fishing fast kind of heavy water, so you know you're normally going to use uh, just big nymphs that have a lot of life in them and, and not worry too much about getting a lot of detail in. But there again, if the fish are fished real hard and the water's not that heavy and it's clear, like the, that Metolius area I was talking about, I'd go more towards uh, more convincing flies. Okay, okay. Do you, when you know, you know, let, let's say it's during a hatching period, you know there's a lot of nymphs on the bottom right now. Um, do you find yourself switching those nymphs out quite readily to try to, zero in, uh, you know, getting them to, to look at, you know, I mean, maybe the anatomical as opposed to a more uh, suggestive pattern? Um, you know, it's, that's the kind of thing I do so much on instinct, and it's not that my instincts are always right. I'm not, you know, I, I don't feel like I can do anything flawlessly or even close to it, but but I, I've been fishing for a whale of a long time, quite a, several decades, and, and uh, I do, you know, anybody who's spent that much time in the water and has any gift for it at all is going to have some pretty strong, pretty accurate instincts on those things, and, and so I rely on those. But um, I think, of, first of all, the mo most important thing is I would depend, I would let the trout tell me, so let's say that I'm fishing fairly fast water and I've got a kind of a rough, suggestive nymph. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example, but anyway, they're out there. And and I'm doing really well, and then I come to some slower water. I would probably only change if I felt that the nymph wasn't doing the work for me that it should be doing. And if it, it was still catching fish, I wouldn't change. Yeah, yeah. I was just, you know, I'm looking at the patterns in here, and I'm looking at, you know, you go from anatomical to something like Pat's rubber legs, you know, um, yeah. I mean, or the black rubber legs, you know, which is very similar, which are, you know, I mean, they look like two totally different insects to me, you know, but yet they both work, you know, for the stone flies or the they both do. salmon flies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so it just, you know, gets, and then there's, of course, things quite in between that that um, are more suggestive and less anatomical, so um, that's why I was asking, it's kind of, 
So you just kind of feel your way through it, it sounds like. Yeah, and I leave it to the trout. You know, I mean, that's that's really at the end of the day what you have to do is, is just let the trout decide. You know, you you cannot decide for the fish. They they don't let you do that. You have to let them decide. So, I mean, I don't care how yeah. how much you fished a piece of water, and let's say during the, the Golden Stone Hatch, I don't care how much you fished it or how well you know it, um, you're still going to have to let the fish guide you because they're not going to they're not going to be consistent, and they're not always going to make sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, one more question, and then we'll, we'll, we'll tie it up for the night here. Uh, okay. John Sanders in Bellingham, Washington. He says, uh, "Stonefly nymphs typically live a long time. I believe two to four years before hatching. Seems to me that." means there are a wide variety of stonefly nymph sizes in an ecosystem. Uh, do you think we tend to fish stonefly patterns that are too large on average? Um, I don't think necessarily too large, but I do think that he makes an excellent point. And, and I, I, one day I woke up and I realized that I'd been doing this myself. This is a long time ago, but I'm just trying to say that I'm just as human as everybody else. But at one point I, I, it dawned on me that whether it's caddis larvae or, or uh, stone salmon fly nymphs or mayfly nymphs, um, there are going to be different age groups down there a lot of times. And that's especially true when you get something that lives longer than a year, like the salmon fly or golden stone. I believe they live two to three years on average. And so, yeah, you, uh, there's an excellent picture in this book, and I'm trying to – there it is – that Carol took that I, I'd love to look at. And it's, uh, let's see, the page number is 30, oh, 39. And she's got two salmon fly nymphs that were taken from the exact same stream. One of them's huge. Oh, yeah. yeah, you're looking at that? And one of them is yeah. about only two-thirds as long and probably half the bulk. And it's just, you know, next year's salmon fly. Those came out of the same water at exactly the same time, and they look exactly the same, except the size difference is dramatic. And right. this is what's always going on in any lake or stream. You've got, you know, different ages of a lot of the insects. And so um, absolutely you could imitate any either of those two in that case. You know, it just depends on yeah. Yeah. which one's more prevalent. Now, let's say that the salmon fly hatch is basically over for that year. Then you would go to imitating the smaller one for next year because most, you know, most or all of the big ones are gone. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, but that's where I think people think, Fly fishers tend to think too simply. They think this is the size of this nymph, this is the size of this and that, and actually, they, especially with the with the underwater forms, they have quite a range in size. Yeah. Um, one more question came in on the internet. I'll squeeze in here. Dave Dillon <laughs> in uh, Norman, Oklahoma. Uh, he says, "What?" And and you can kind of just narrow this down from what you've been talking about. What What are the one or two best imitations to use for the dry fly? Salmon slash golden stone, uh, and the best for nymph versions. So, if you could pick two two dries and two nymphs, uh, what would they be? Ay ay ay! Don't leave home without these. <laughs> Boy, that's that's always so hard to answer. It's like, what's what's your yeah. favorite song or what's your favorite movie? You know, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Favorite, favorite scotch, favorite wine. <laughs> and, yeah, you're, I like them all. Right. <laughs> well, I know what your favorite uh, time f food is, but yeah, you know, yeah. I, you know I, I wish I could give him a good answer. I mean, lately I've been fishing that Skip's Promise a lot for everything, for 
I, I tie it in a grasshopper version, and I sometimes I fish it just as a searching fly. So right now, for me, that would be that would be the dry fly. But that's me, and he'd have to tie it himself. Um, you know, a lot of people trust the stimulator, as I said before, and and foam flies, good choice. I just don't have an easy answer. I wish I did because it's yeah. a good question, but I I don't have a very good answer. As far as the nymphs, you know, the Pat Pat's rubber legs is so available. Um, yeah, that's a good choice. And it, you know, the the thing about that fly is it may lack a lot of detail, but it does have the overall form, and mm-hmm. it's certainly proven itself. So that's that's oh, a good yeah. choice. Yeah. I think yeah. you know one thing you have to think about though, and and people forget this is that when you show the trout something new or any fish. You know, they do start to recognize these different patterns. Sometimes I think they're down there going, oh, another stimulator, huh? You know, they probably could tie some themselves by then. And and so you get a whole different type of pattern, and, and sometimes they will respond to it because they have not figured it out yet. Yeah, 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 that's true, yeah. All right, good. Well, thanks. Uh, skip, stick with me here. We're going to be giving away your book. I'd like you to help me do that. Um, okay. So uh, stick with me a few more minutes, and... Folks, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, when we return, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International um, and a one-year subscription to Fly, Ta- Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, uh, courtesy of Amato Books, uh, and a copy of Skip's book, uh, The Salmon Fly, courtesy of Stackful Books. So stick with us a couple more minutes, and uh, we'll give those prizes away, and hopefully you'll be one of the lucky winners. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The pebble mine still remains a threat to the region, and 2 million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry is united in this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org, SaveBristolBay.org, to learn more and to get involved. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, What did you think of this show? Just click on the link and leave your comments, uh, and we'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away some prizes. Uh, The winners for the drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show. You don't want to miss out on your chance to win some of these incredible prizes we have to offer. The lucky winners will be contacted after the show uh, to get their information so that we can uh, get their prize out to them. Uh, so first we'll give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org, a great organization to be part of and to support. And uh, whether you fish warm water, cold water, salt water, whatever, um, they're there helping us all out. Um, okay, so the winner for that is Victor Smith. Victor Smith in Colorado. So, Victor, congratulations! Yeah, you got that uh, one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International. Good and uh, yeah, now we'll give away a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, uh, which is you can learn more about it at mottobooks.com along with their other periodicals and books. Check them out, amatobooks.com. And our winner for that is Ed Constantini, Ed Constantini in Wisconsin. So Yay. congratulations, Ed. Yeah, yeah. yeah we got a good, good fan section here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for chiming in, Skip. Um, oh, yeah. 
Yeah, so now we'll give away Skip's book. Um, so, Yay! Uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, I jumped Skip's the gun. I'm book sorry. readily available at uh, on Amazon or through uh, Stackpole Books. Oh, so, incredibly uh, available, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so uh, yeah. check it out. There's only one winner for tonight, but um, go get it and learn more about the salmon fly. We only touched <laughs> on a few bits of things that uh, Skip put in the book, and, of course, he... Like you said, did a lot of research on this, so I'll check it out. Yeah. So, um, all right, let's see here. The question will be, uh, this is like a two-part question. Um, in, and, and the way to do this is put fast dash and, and, um, uh, and slow dash. So in fast water, uh, Skip recommended a fly. Uh, you know, kind of a construction of a fly. And in slow water, he recommended a kind of fly. So give me those two flies. It doesn't have to be the exact pattern, but the type of fly um, will do fine. So um, let's see if this is too hard here, Skip. I don't, did, do you think I phrased it okay? It yeah, that sounds right. I, I think I'd understand okay. the question. Sure. Okay. All right. So uh, we're just I'm just checking the queue here, Skip, waiting for our winner to answer the question. First one in that gets it right will get a copy of Skip's book. So it takes a minute for this thing to, for them to type and for this to cycle through. Uh, if I answer, would I win the book? <laughs> hey, I had one guest do that one night, and I go, oh, no, you're not supposed to answer. I'm like, no, you know it. Uh, no, I've got a copy. I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, and I, I clarify this. Uh, I'm talking about dry flies, uh, guys, dry flies. So um, I did get an answer here that was nymphs, but I'm talking about dry flies, fast and slow water. Um, and this might not have been a, a good question to ask. That's pretty close. Uh, I'm getting a lot of impress slow impressionistic, uh, fast realistic. But I, let, let me run this one by you here, Skip, see if you buy into this one. Okay. Uh, fast, less detail like a stimulator, and slow more detail. That sounds right to me. Yeah, uh, what I was looking for really was that foam. Uh, I was looking for the stimulator style and then the um. foam style for the slower. Uh, but that seems to be the closest one that we've got in here. So um, should we give him the book? I think that would be fair, yes. Okay, yeah, Dave Dillon, uh, Norman, Oklahoma. Just got your Yeah, so Dave, send me your address. You can use the same text box you were just in or send it to info at askaboutflyfishing.com, info at askaboutflyfishing.com. So send me your, your mailing address so we can uh, have Stackpole ship you out a book, and uh, congratulations on that. I, that was kind of a squirrely question. Sorry about that. But um, you kind of zeroed in, uh, Dave, more than anybody. So um, sounds good. All right, so that's it for tonight. Um, hey, Skip, really appreciate you being on with us again. Uh, we've Skip uh, has done other shows with us. So check them out as well. I think we have another salmon fly with Bob Jacklin as well in our archive. We've got over 275 shows in our archive, folks. So dig in and learn. Uh, 
lots to be learned there. And uh, our next broadcast will be on September 5th, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'll interview Devin Olson. And our topic for the show will be competitive fly fishing. Devin qualified for his ninth consecutive berth on Fly Fishing Team USA in 2017 and has traveled the world competing and winning. Join us to learn how he, to get started in competitive fly fishing and what you need to do to be the best and compete with the best. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, Watermaster, Stackpole Books, and Baja Fly Fishing Company for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of your future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.